The following contains plot spoilers and the comments and opinions expressed herein are for entertainment and commentary purposes only and may not reflect the actual opinions of Geeks Radio or the individual hosts. So don't get mad. It's just a show. In a world where it's always Christmas, but never sunny, two men decided to talk about superheroes. This is totally super. You know what I was convinced that you were going to say? I was convinced that you were going to say mistletoe can be deadly if you eat it, but podcasting can be even deadlier if you try it. I was convinced oh, that, that would have been so much better. All right, here we go. The, here, I'll just so everyone will get a second one. Mistletoe can be deadly if you eat it. But a podcast can be even deadlier if you listen to it. This is Totally Super. Oh, very good. Welcome to Totally Super, where we there review we go. <laughs> every superhero movie ever made. My name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. And today we are reviewing, dare I say, my favorite superhero movie? Um, or is it? That's going to be the question that we answer today. There's going to be no question about whether or not I like this film. Because I like this mm-hmm. film a lot. Um, but this film was at one point in my life, the film I listed as my favorite film before I had a resurgence of interest in star Wars and really started taking a look at how great empire is. Um, Mm -hmm. but this is a film that I like, this is how much I love you guys. I watched this film for this review, which is really funny because I watched this film last December. Like I do every December. Um, ah, for, this for is some people, that, Die Hard is their Christmas film, but not for Justin. For Justin, yep. this is their Christmas. This is the Christmas I film. I love this movie. This movie has lots of memories attached to it. Some I will talk about today. Some I will have to be more vague about. Lots of there's a lot to unpack with this film. Um, when was the last time you watched Batman Returns? Oh gosh, probably 15 years ago. Um, wow. I mean, I watched it a few times after it came out, but that was about it. I mean, and, but then I, you know, watched it again this morning to, you know, to prep for the podcast, of course. As did I. Um, uh, it's worth noting that um, I have also, in the last couple of days, watched Batman Forever. And I'm going to be referencing Batman Forever in a very vague way a couple of times. Um, we'll be doing that next week. Uh, but there's there's a comparison that I think needs to be made between this film and that film. Um, what was your impression of the film or what is your memory of how you felt about the film when it first came out? Because, um, there are plenty of people when it first came out who felt that this film was an utter disappointment. People were not pleased. I remember people thinking that this film, quote unquote, sucked. So what was your impression? I, I distinctly remember not enjoying it as much as the first film. Um, I don't know if at the time I said that it's, I thought that it sucked. Um, but even... Even as a even as a young lad, uh, I felt that the first Batman was a was a stronger film in many ways. Okay, so we're going to find out today whether or not that is true. Um, uh, I think a case can be made for both, and I'm going to try to be fair um, and not just look at this film uh, with the rose-colored glasses that I might have. Um, Batman Returns is, of course, the continuation of the Batman saga created by uh, Tim Burton. It is worth noting that this is the first, what I would say, the first true sequel um, it's arguable whether and I guess no, a Batman and Robin will also be a, a sequel to Batman Forever. We just changed Batman there, but everything else is just the same. Um what do you mean the first true sequel to what? Like a superhero film? Well no, or? what I was about to say is I was about to say this is the only real sequel to a Batman movie until the Dark Dark Knight Return or until the Dark Knight. 
Um, but in point of fact, no, it's worth noting that, that, that this is at least a sequel to the original Batman and Batman and Robin is at least a sequel to Batman forever. It's, we can talk about next week, whether or not those movies are sequels to these movies, because that's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a weird, it, it, these are a weird bunch of films. I'm just going to put it out there. It's an odd bunch of films. Um, let's give you the stats. Uh, this film came out in June 16th of 1992. This was not a Christmas movie. It came out midsummer. Uh, it was, uh, comes in 126 minute long, uh, budget of 80 million coming in with a box office of 266 million, uh, worldwide. Now it's worth noting that wow, this film that is uh, not is, as much. Yeah, not at all. Um, so if we look at the Batman uh, film series, and I look at the um, the original Batman film, the original Batman uh, with a budget of only thirty five million came in with a box office of four hundred and eleven million. So we're talking about twice the budget, half the box office. And, you know, I think it's safe to say that that was a problem for the studio and it's no question as to why we have a different creative team behind the camera next week. But we'll talk about that next week. This film comes in with uh, with uh, Danny DeVito as the Penguin, who was the first uh, choice to play the Penguin. And Michelle oh, Pfeiffer, who was a last minute replacement for Annette Bening, who had been cast. Um, Ooh, but then, interesting. Uh, circum- circumstances arose that required it to be uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. Coming with some other uh, cameos in there, um, we're going to talk about Paul Rubens coming in to play Oswald Cobblepot's dad. That was actually supposed to be Burgess Meredith, uh, who was the Penguin of the Batman TV series. Um, but for health reasons, he wasn't able to come in and do it um a lot of the same uh actors like michael go and pat hingle uh coming in uh christopher walker coming in first time i'd ever seen christopher walken in a film is this so for me personally yeah. uh, well let's start with you how old were you in 1992 in 1992 i think i was 13 13 and your parents were cool with you your parents were if i remember somewhat restrictive as to what they wouldn't, wouldn't let you see did they let you go see this in the theater and did they go see it with you were they happy that they let you see it what was uh what was your well, feeling i couldn't around? see it in the i don't remember seeing it in the i might have seen it in the theater i was overseas at the time so we only had a few films that actually came to the theaters i might have watched it on video um yeah they were fine with me see i mean keep in mind i'd watched robocop by this point um so yeah no i the number of r-rated films i'd watched by the tender age of 13 was quite high so uh so, so this was so a real a problem a, a real change in your life between 1989 and 1992 um certainly and it's worth noting three years a long time to go um if you think about how quickly kids age um it's worth noting that batman would come out and you would have people who were, you know, freshmen in high school who are now seniors in high school. And you'd have middle schoolers mm-hmm. who were now into high school. Like when you're making a film for kids, it's, you know, we're talk- we're recording this just four days before Toy Story 4 comes out, which is nine years since the last Toy Story. And it seems like there's a new Toy Story every generation of children. Um, yeah. Which is a risky way to do it. But yet somehow they've managed to hold on to it. But there is also the risk that if you wait three years, you're going to age out your target market demographic, which would be, Mm. we would assume that I certainly Warner Brothers in DC would assume that this film was supposed to be for kids. Um, We could talk about whether or not this film was supposed to be for kids. 
Um, in terms of my own, I guess I'll get into a couple of stories just for fun. I hope you don't mind, uh, ladies and gentlemen, but this is something that, like I said, near and dear to my heart. This film came out the summer after my sophomore year in high school, and it can't be overstated what an important summer that is. You're going from being um, an underclassman to an upperclassman. Uh, in my case, I was in the middle of my first real relationship, my first real girlfriend that I had ever had. And we were into, by this point, like nine months of a relationship. Um, and I was, it was summertime. And so I was seeing her during the summer. She lived right around the corner from my very good friend, Matt, uh, who I was, he had graduated a couple of years, uh, before, but he was, he's a, he's Mormon. And, um, in the Mormon religion, uh, 19 year old boys or 19 year old young men go off on a mission for a couple of years. And so this was the last summer before Matt was going to go away on his mission. And so this was sort of my last like hurrah hanging out at his house, um, hanging out with some upperclassmen. Uh, I just remember the summer much more like I remember everything about the summer with this sort of rose colored, you know, you know, red hot, wet hot American summer kind of glasses that I have. Mm -hmm. um, this is the sort of summer that you would make a movie about. So Batman Returns coming out that summer is sort of in the middle of all of this. My friend Van and I went to go see it in what was a really an unusual move at the time. There was a limited release screening two days before it came out in Bethesda, Maryland. And, and I went down to Bethesda with my buddy Van and we saw it the night before anybody was able to see it. And it was a packed house, but it was only one theater in the entire like DC area that was playing. And I got to see it. So when I went to school the next day, of course, I was exhausted, but I went to school the next day, of course, and I was you know, able to say, haha, I saw it. It was so good. People are saying, oh, what happened? What happened? And I probably saw it three or four times more or over the course of uh, the summer. Um, actually, I don't oh, wow. what a different school. What a different time it was when you got a chance to see films before other people and they said, what happened? What happened? As opposed to no spoilers. Yeah. And uh, it's worth noting, I might be wrong about going to the going to school part. Um, I think it was just hanging out with my friends because we were into June and I think school would have been out by then. Um, mm -hmm. But in any case, uh, I remember one story I will tell. I remember a particularly hot day when I had stayed the night at Matt's. I had a, a midday uh, date with my with my then girlfriend that I cut short because I was going with the upperclassmen boys. Um, a bunch of seniors and people had already graduated and me. And she was like, well, aren't we going to go out to go see it? Because we had gone out to lunch. And I was like, I'm sorry. This is not one for you. She's like, but you've already seen the movie. I was like, I don't care. It's me and the upper class and the these seniors and now college students going to go see Batman wow. Returns. Um, and I see these people still on a relatively regular basis. So that's it's sort of that indelible summer that cemented some of the permanent relationships in my life. You know, this this ex-girlfriend of mine, I am still friends with. Matt, I am still friends with. The upperclassman I went to see it with, I'm still friends with. And I'm seeing some of them this summer. So it's not I you know, they say that when you listen to music, 
the reason that the music you always like is the music you grew up with is because it became the soundtrack for these indelible moments in your life. And this movie was kind of part of that for me. This particular summer was so, and we talked about this when we did The Crow, but this particular summer was so influential in my life. This movie was at the center of it. And so I have very positive feelings surrounding this film in particular. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if that's part of the reason that I have such fondness for it. And yet I remember walking out going, it's not as good as the first one. And it has been in retrospect that I've started to enjoy it more and more and more. So that is that is sort of where I'm coming into. So I just want to give a, a picture of what mm-hmm. life was like for well, I think me it's important to Batman Returns. And, and certainly those who have been listening to the podcast for a while know this is kind of the way we like to handle it is, yes, we can talk about a film being good or bad objectively. Um, although quickly you discover that nobody has the same metric for what makes a film good or bad. And so, uh, trying to appeal to some, you know, platonic high standard of this is how it is quickly falls apart. Um, and there's another aspect for films and just stories in general is it's exactly as you say, sometimes a story comes along at a particular key moment in your life that just happens to trigger something. And who knows, maybe it was just the way the wind was blowing that day, but suddenly it becomes cemented into the tapestry of your own history. Uh, I remember, uh, you know, The Last Unicorn, that is my movie that I saw when I was six years old. And I still actually say it is possibly the first religious experience I've ever had in my life. Um, That movie is, you know, it has flaws all the way through it. I remember I showed it to you just as a sense of, hey, part of my personality comes from this film. So it's important as my friend that you see it. But I also showed it to you with no expectations that you, too, would have a religious experience and say, oh, my God, this is the most amazing movie ever. No, I didn't Um, like it. And I didn't like it at all. Exactly. But that's just me. I also Um, feel that I also feel that way about the Dark Crystal. So, you know, mm -hmm. I might just not have the imagination necessary. So it is the so it is completely possible um, for us to say, you know, either with this film or with others or something to say, hey, you know what? Uh, By whatever vague objective metric we can find, this movie was not great. But that is never to that is never to take away the fact that it could still have a really powerful effect on somebody. Well, if we look objectively at how people felt about the film, I can tell you someone who did not uh, or a group of people who did not enjoy the film. And that was Warner Brothers. They were not terribly happy about this film. There was a Mm -hmm. podcast that I listened to, and it was this word that I discovered in this film, in the podcast for this film. And the word is toyetic. Toyetic is when you're creating a film Ooh. for a franchise that's going to be able to play to children. Have you so that you can put make toys. moments and creatures and vehicles and characters that are easily translatable to toys? And this film decidedly failed to do it, but they tried. So they put out the toys and McDonald's put out the meals and then the movie came out and there are 
jokes about erections and there oh are gosh. jokes about yeah. vaginas and there's a mass shooting in the middle of it and there's there's just all this misogyny although this time it's it's on purpose um to make a point about catwoman there's an attempted rape there's it's there's a dark dark edge to this film and they pulled yeah. the toys from McDonald's because oh, there was wow. outcry that this film was not appropriate it is not a kids film yeah for children I want to point out that I watched the first Batman movie, as I said before, with my preteen and my eight-year-old, and we watched Batman Forever specifically on Father's Day because I knew I would have to watch it, and they were like, what do you want to watch? It was Rogue One or that were my choices, and I kind of was leaning toward Rogue One, but I knew I had to watch a Batman movie, so I said, let's do Batman and Batman Returns, and then I thought about it, and I was like, actually, let's do Batman Forever because I'm not sure I want my eight-year-old, and maybe not even my preteen, at least with, with me, to watch. I'd be uncomfortable watching this movie with one of my children. This Absolutely. Is- Although I do remember it was not it was definitely not a film for kids. However, as a 13 year old watching this in the early 90s, who was just starting to discover puberty, it was um, especially with Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman, very much a film targeted for my exact age at that time. Let's just say. Well, that's a good question, because the, the question of who this film is for is going to be something that we're going to have to really closely examine, because while it is certainly not for kids, I can't imagine that this film would have been for the grown-ups of the time. You know, my dad is 23 years older than I am. And I can't mm-hmm. imagine that when I was, you know, I guess just barely 16, my 38-year-old dad would not have watched this film and had anything to take from it. It's too silly. It's a it's a yeah. it's Looney Tunes. It there's no logic to it. It's it's just weird and and silly. I think mm-hmm. this film is only for people who were between the ages of 12 and 17 in 1992. Yeah. And then a side, an offshoot of people who were, let's say, odd, um, of which I consider myself one. People who have a mm-hmm. skewed look at the world, um, the the nerds, the geeks, the the people at the time who, who would have loved this and then Nightmare Before Christmas after it. And this is why I think it appeals to me because I love the weirdness of this film. Mm-hmm. So with that being said... If you can, what is the plot of that? <laughs> oh, I, actually, Lord. it's a really straightforward plot. It's not so hard. What is the plot of Batman Returns? Okay. Um, so here we go. Prologue. Gotham City. A magical place where even the animals have magical powers, like raising children or resurrecting people from the dead. Uh, it is 33 years earlier. We see a flashback where a freak child is born to two very rich parents Horrified, they throw the child off of a bridge into the river. The basket floats down the river into a zoo where penguins discover it. And that is the end of the prologue. Roll credits. Act 1. 33 years later, it's Christmas in Gotham, and a gang of circus clowns are terrorizing the city. The mayor seems helpless to prevent it. Batman is summoned, and he fights off the baddies while showing off the upgrades he got since the last film. Meanwhile, millionaire industrialist and the role model for Ayn Rand's philosophy, Max Schreck, is trying to convince the city to let him build his power plant. We also meet his executive assistant, the timid, one would almost say, mousy Selina Kyle. You, you see that? You see what I... Act 2. Max Schreck is kidnapped by the leader of the circus gang, a villain who haunts the sewers called the Penguin. 
Aptly named because he looks like a penguin-human hybrid. The penguin wants Max's help to return to society, and Max agrees. Max returns to his office to find Selina Kyle looking through his files. She has discovered that his power plant will actually suck power from Gotham instead of giving it. To prevent her from talking, Max hurls her from the window. But as Selina lies, possibly dead in the snow, she is swarmed by cats, who revive her. She returns to her apartment and has a major freakout session, which results in some truly quality seamstress work, and sexy Catwoman is born. Act 3. The Penguin returns to the surface world while supposedly saving the mayor's baby, which endears him to the populace. Max seeks to leverage this to gain power and convinces Penguin, now going by Oswald Cobblepot, to run for mayor. Bruce Wayne slash Batman thinks there's something fishy about both Shrek and Cobblepot and proceeds to investigate. Catwoman blows up part of Shrek's department store, and she and Batman have a sexy fight on the rooftops. Sparks fly, but then Batman punches her off a roof. She survives. Act 4. Meanwhile, Bruce Wayne and Selina Kyle and their normal alter egos are really hitting it off. They have a lovely evening filled with scintillating discussion about being trapped by their own duality. Really heady stuff, which devolves into a serious makeout session. This is interrupted, though, as in a plot to frame the Batman, Penguin kidnaps the Ice Princess, who is a Miss America type. Batman tries to save her, but Penguin hurls her from the roof while bats swarm around her. The police turn on Batman, and he is forced to escape, after disarming a trap set for him in his Batmobile. It looks like Oswald Cobblepot is destined to become mayor until, at a press conference, Bruce hacks the audio signal and plays back a recording of the Penguin badmouthing Gotham City. The crowd turns, driving Penguin back into the sewers. Act 5. Bruce and Selina meet at a Christmas party, where they figure out each other's secret identities. But before they can discuss it, Penguin interrupts as he hatches what was his plot all along, to kidnap and murder the firstborn sons of Gotham City. He also kidnaps Shrek again and vanishes into the sewers. Batman goes off to foil the Penguin's plans. Catwoman goes off to complete her revenge on Max. Batman stops the whole firstborn kidnapping thing by simply hijacking the vehicle that the circus gang had used to store the kids. Penguin then goes to plan B, which is to wire bombs and rockets to all of his Penguin friends at his hideout at the zoo and send them to blow up Gotham. Batman hijacks the radio signal and sends the Penguins back to Cobblepot's hideout. Batman and Cobblepot face off against each other, and as Cobblepot detonates the rockets, a bunch of bats swarm around him, hurling him from the roof of the Penguin enclosure. As Max is escaping, he is ambushed by Catwoman. Batman, revealing himself as Bruce, begs Selina to just turn Max into the police, and they can find their own happy ending. But Catwoman declines the offer, violently. Max shoots her several times, but she makes her way to Max and murderizes him with a kiss, a stun gun, and a wire with a whole lot of electric current. A wounded penguin appears to hurl his final curses at Batman before dying, and is escorted to a watery grave by, seriously, penguin pallbearers. Alfred drives Bruce home, with one of the wonderfully ironic final lines of the film, well, come what may, Merry Christmas, Fiend. Ah. Uh. I, I'm going to have okay, to. Okay, slide- I will. I will fully admit this is one of the more convoluted synopses that I was writing. Like I literally just watched this film this morning, and I was going back and going through the plot, and I was like, "Oh my god, I have literally no recollection of what of order events happened in the middle of the film." And I do have to correct you about the last line. It is "Merry Christmas, Mr. Wayne." Thank you, Alfred. Uh, goodwill toward men and, and women. women. Yes, no, I said one of the final lines of the film. And then we cut to a shot of Gotham City where Catwoman's head looks up because she's still alive for the spinoff. 
that's going to happen. The Michelle Pfeiffer-led Catwoman spinoff that was supposed to start shooting the next year. That never happened and stayed in production hell forever and ever and ever and ever until it finally became Catwoman starring Halle Berry, which we are going to be required to hate watch at some point because mm-hmm. we're reviewing every superhero movie ever made. Um, but uh, yeah, she was supposed to continue on to be Catwoman in her own film. Um, I think it's okay because she practically Catwoman in her own film now, isn't she? Um, for a movie called Batman Returns, the character who seems to return the littlest to this film is Batman. So is Where Batman? is Batman? Like we see film? Batman, we see Batman briefly uh, at the beginning, but then we don't actually get a real scene with Bruce Wayne until like thirty minutes into the film. Um, arguably, the protagonist of this, like we talked in the last one about, okay, does the original Batman have a central protagonist? And we weren't exactly sure. I feel with this one, like if I had to choose a central protagonist, it would be the penguin. Like he's the one whose origin story we see at the beginning. He's the one who has a goal that he tries to achieve. Batman is the antagonist of this film. I mean, he's yeah, a good guy. I would say that there are two antagonists. Say Batman and Max Shrek are the antagonists of this film. And if we were to put this film up, it would have to have two protagonists, uh, a male and female protagonist. So this would have to be. Mm-hmm. A um like a romantic comedy where you have two protagonists, you know what I mean, like a Notting Hill or a or a mm-hmm. you know, or a one Harry Met Sally, where you are following almost equally two different protagonists. They <laughs> each have their own set of antagonists. And he's so, a yes. flippered freak with a penchant for murder. She's a sexy cat who likes the taste of feathered things. It's Penguin and Catwoman. I know. Like that's it's, the rom com right there. Comedy with those two. <laughs> um, I. This is one of the the criticisms lot lobbed lobbed lodged lobbied at the, I don't know at, yeah thrown spat at this <laughs> film that because you have decided to have not one not two but three separate villains each i will say this for each of the villains they're each fairly well defined they each yeah. have a pretty significant goal of their own they have their own story going on we know what each of them wants in fact the only character that we don't really know what they want is Batman and Bruce yeah, Wayne? Yeah, Batman is purely Batman is purely reactive in this. And in fact, he, he reacts. Bruce to things Wayne that even happen, seems somewhat surprised by what Batman wants and doesn't want to do. But yeah, Bruce Wayne is. Here's the deal: in the last film, we talked about how Bruce Wayne was he was distracted, and when we get to the Nolan verse, it will be that that you know Playboy thing that he has going on is is a definite put on. In this case, mm-hmm. Bruce Wayne. It's kind of like befuddled all the time. When he's Batman, he's yeah, kind of I, in control. But when he's Bruce Wayne, he's legitimately like the elevator doors are closing on him. He's like, oh, what's going on? Like He's just yeah. sort of not fully present. Um, well, and I don't know what Batman wants. From, it's uh, worth noting. There's a scene in this film where Bruce is like his parents. I hope he finds them. Then there's a little scene in between. And then Bruce is out in the Batmobile, cruising the streets, stalking the penguin, saying, I don't believe that his parents are what he's looking for. But yeah. what? But remember There's, the scene? To, Literally four to bar and a the half concept from uh, To borrow the concept from the Kill Bill series about, okay, what is the real person, the, the hero or the alter ego? 
um, in the Christopher Nolan films, it is definitive that Batman is the true identity of the character and that Bruce Wayne, as you say, is Bruce Wayne is the mask in that one, uh, you know, billionaire playboy sort of thing in this one. I very much get the sense that no mild mannered, befuddled Bruce Wayne is the main character is the essence. I'm going to um, I'm going to postulate something different. Actually, I'm going to postulate that Bruce Wayne and Batman are two different people that Bruce Wayne sure hopes the penguin finds his parents and really is kind of inconvenienced by having to turn into the Batman. And Batman is completely convinced that is completely convinced that the penguin is the, the the penguin is bad and that there is a true actual like separate romance going on with Batman and Catwoman and a separate romance going on with Bruce Wayne and Selina and I think that this is maybe not this is maybe not on accident because well, it certainly would make sense the the because Selina and it would make sense because uh in the date between Bruce and Selina all they talk about is how frustrated they both are uh, by their, you know, by their other personality, essentially. Yeah. And at the end, Bruce says, you know, we're split right down the middle. So I have a mm-hmm. feeling that Batman's goals are different than Bruce's and that Bruce knows he has to turn into Batman. But I don't think that's Bruce when he's Batman. Oh, that's interesting. I could see there's there's justification for that. Um, Let's talk real quick about the opening scene. That if you like the open, if you can deal with the opening scene in this film, then you're going to be better off than if you can't deal with the opening scene. If the opening scene is too much for you, then if you go through that scene with an uncomfortable feeling, which I probably did the first time I watched it. I love it now. But the first Mm -hmm. time I watched it, I didn't get it. You know, we had seen, you know, that very dark, gritty opening to the first Batman. And now we're seeing Pee Wee Herman. And I wasn't until this week when I was looking into the film. Not only is that Pee Wee Herman from Pee Wee's Big Adventure, but the mother is Miss Simone from Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Ha. So here are two of the leads of Pee Wee's Big Adventure sitting there with a baby that is so horrid that. Everybody screams when they look at it that they lock in a box that kills a cat, just murders a cat at the very beginning of the movie before anything else traumatic has happened to it, that they decide to dump into in a bassinet in a very Moses like way down the river, Mm -hmm. part Moses, part Phantom of the Opera. Um, it's a weird opening and, and the opening music da, 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 is playing over shots of this bassinet, just a bassinet floating through the sewers. Not nearly as uh, it's certainly not as finding out. Yeah, it's weird. So the uh, yeah last the last episode you mentioned, uh, because I up until rewatching these films in my mind, I very much thought, OK, Batman, Batman Returns, same universe, you know, same kind of mood. It's Batman Forever, where the tone totally changes and becomes much more comic booky. Um, last episode, you said, uh, actually, there's a big difference between the Batman and the Batman Return universes, too. And with that in mind, I watched the vi- like just the prologue. I was like, oh, my goodness, these are completely different films. Um So that's why I wanted to bring up Batman Forever really quickly, because watching Mm -hmm. Batman Forever and Batman Returns and Batman, I've watched all three of them in like eight days now. Mm -hmm. And I think that while there is a difference in appearance, certainly it's brighter and more garish when you get to Batman Forever. 
I see Batman Forever as existing in the same universe as Batman Returns. This is just what I happens when the Batman Forever universe gets snow all over it. Um, mm-hmm. Because this is not anything like the real world. There's the, the city has giant statues. The art direction's insane in this film. It's crazy. It's just crazy. Like it, Although it's, strangely it's, enough, the city feels smaller in this film. The like the first got the first film. I you know I remember seeing these towering skyscrapers and everything like that. Um, there was a sense of space. I mean, you know, the final fight was on top of like a huge cathedral. Um, in this one, yes, there are towering statues and you know and weird cat faces everywhere. But it's it's almost a cloistered feel in all of the shots. Yeah, is there's there's the town square, right? There's nothing but the town square. There's ju- there's the, the town movie. square. I mean, even the yeah, even only Bruce ever like Wayne's 50 manor. People. Yeah, even Bruce Wayne's manor. The only shots that we see like. In the first film, there were just, you know, these long shots of huge hallways and a massive room with armor and all these things in this. Like, it seems like every room in the Wayne Manor in Batman Returns is like eh, maybe a little bit bigger than the average room in my house. Just, you know, better appointed. And there's more of them. I see that. Um, That being said, there's well, the other one had sense of space. This one had sense of scale. And sense of art. I would say this that, and I and I said this at the time, by the end of the summer, I think that this is at the time, and we can talk at the end whether about whether or not this is still true. That this was the most accurate feeling of taking a comic book and putting it up on the screen. As weird as that comic might be, like the fact that instead of making the center of Gotham feel like the center of New York or something. Gotham is a place with big giant statues and they spent the money there instead of like going to a location and making it feel like a city. Instead, they made mm-hmm. it feel like the, the frame of the comic has come to life. And that's kind of, you know, they, instead of all of the huge Wayne Manor, they've instead have an enormous fire, a ridiculously large fire behind him. Um, mm-hmm. a, there's something about that choice, this this bizarre film noir choice that was made to make the film in this way, that I really appreciate this time around. And frankly, I've seen a lot of movies in cities. And while the sense of of of, of space and it being in this large city and Wayne Manor being large, um, I've seen movies in in mansions and stuff. I have never seen another movie before or since that really looks or feels like this one. And I'm thankful for it. Yeah, I mean, yes, maybe it feels scaled down, but I prefer like I don't think that that for instance, okay, have you you've, you've lived in New York and I've spent a lot of time mm-hmm. in New York City. In New York City, yeah. that giant Christmas tree and that giant present that comes down the street would not seem like a very big deal, correct? Correct. All right. In this Gotham City, do they not seem like a huge deal? The Yeah, I could see that. So what they've done by making the city smaller is they've made every character in the city bigger, if that makes More sense. More important. That yeah, makes bigger, sense. larger you know, than life. I'm, as we're talking about the cities, I'm thinking about it, and I'm thinking the... Uh, we talked in the last episode about you know the nature of a lot of 80s films. There was a, there was a real sense of dystopia, um, in 80s films, it was like so many of the cities in 80s films were it was almost like it was post-apocalyptic. But in today's time, like Escape from New York was an 80s film and, uh, you know, like cities were dangerous, grungy places. Uh, and certainly the first Batman felt that way. 
Um, Gotham was a big city, but it was also a city where there were bad guys lurking around every corner. And it wasn't and not even necessarily like super villain bad guys, but just low life criminals everywhere. And that is very much and that, you know, is in line with an 80s film, an 80s city. This is we're starting to get into the 90s stuff. And because the 90s was when goth started really becoming a thing. And the 90s certainly had its own sense of darkness to it, but it was I don't want to say more cartoonish darkness, but it was more that it wasn't as bleak like the philosophy behind it was not so it wasn't so dirty and grimy like even the crow. Um, which there's is a, a, rom- dark, there's a dark, romanticism. Dark. There's a real romance. That's it. That's it. Exactly. Yes. There's a romanticism to it all. Um, and the sense of and I'm, I don't mean romance in the love sense, but like, you know, romantic in the sense of the of the genre. Uh, Batman Returns is very much a romantic film in that sense. Well, I think that if we were to say who the real star of this film is, let's say it. It's Tim Burton. This film is so Tim Burton, whereas I could. Oh, so Tim bear- Burton. I could barely see the influence of Tim Burton on the last film. This film feels like it's the cutscenes from Nightmare Before Christmas. This, this film, film is, there's you're watching it and you're like, there's literally no other person who could have made this film. But Tim Burton. Yeah. If you were to show me this film today without telling me who made it, I'd immediately be able to go. This is a film by Tim Burton. Um, mm-hmm. You know, everybody with the white face, everybody with the stripes. I mean, for goodness sake, uh, Max Shrek is practically wearing the outfit from Nightmare Before Christmas that Jack Skellington wears. Even the name <laughs> Max Shrek. What an interesting character this is. Let's talk about Max for, for a minute. Max Shrek, the name Max Shrek is a reference to the actor who played um, the character Nosferatu in the original Nosferatu. The name of that actor was Max Shrek. If you want to see. Interesting. Um, if you want to see an amazing uh, film. And I just want to make sure that I'm getting this right. Um, with William Defoe, he did a film called Shadow of the Vampire, where he played the actor Max Shrek, who evidently was like an, a vampire offset too. Um, it's a really wow. weird um, and wonderful film, Shadow of the Vampire, and and the original Nosferatu is a classic. So they've just like it would be sort of like 50 years from now making a character named Sylvester Stallone. Like, <laughs> here's here's my character, Sylvester Stallone. It's like the, wow. the, the character Max Shrek is is that actor is that iconic for that that role. So to just call him Max Shrek is is bold. It's a bold choice. And and the the fright wig, the weirdness of Walken. I had never seen a Christopher Walken movie before this. This is late Walken. I uh, mid mid Walken, but this is the the mm-hmm. self-parody Walken. I've since seen things like um, the Deer Hunter, where mm-hmm. I realized Christopher Walken can actually act. Oh yeah, but this was this is Christopher Walken doing Christopher Walken, and this was my introduction to him. What is your thought about Max Shrek? Uh, I think it's I think you you've covered it pretty well. The he's definitely a as is so many of the the characters in this. He is he's clearly defined. He's got a goal. Um, he's a, he's a little bit deeper than two dimensional. Um, because of his, you know, he actually cares about his son. Um, there's, there's some cool moments for it. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It's Christopher Walken is the, what's kind of interesting is this is not Walken at his weirdest. Uh, I think this is actually far from Walken at his weirdest, but what makes it work is that I could see another actor playing this role and Max Shrek would be just a very straightforward, 
uh, archetypical, um, you know, selfish, ruthless businessman. But when you have Christopher Walken doing it, there is this undercurrent consistently of something just off and strange about him that you can never quite put your finger on. And I think that's I think that's just Walken's nature. What I enjoy about and again, I didn't know Walken before that. So having never seen him before going like, who is this guy? Why is he talking like this? Why Mm -hmm. is he pausing in ways that make no sense? It's it's crazy. And and it, I remember at the time not liking him in the role. And he is so grown on me in the role because it's it's so weird and it's so fitting for this. And yeah, he does have a goal. He wants to build a capacitor that stockpiles uh, power and he wants to drive Penguin into being the mayor. And he is also a, an owner of a department store and is I, I he's got a goal it's weird i'm not quite sure what his goal ultimately is except he just wants to have power and have his fingers and everything but is he a reflection of you know and i'm not trying to get political but is he a reflection of the perception of of a character like donald trump in the 1990s mm-hmm. who has his fingers in so many pies um at the time certainly just years before the character of of biff tannen in Back to the Future 2 is a direct and and overt reference to Donald Trump. Um mm-hmm. and is was this supposed to be, you know, not President Trump and, and I'm not trying to make any comments about that, but I'm trying to say at the time that idea of a of an over the top mogul, is that what they're trying to do? And is that part certainly of the we're in the certainly we're in the post yuppie era where because so much of the 80s was about, you know, the goal was to become that guy. And the 90s is, you know, we're starting to get into, a, uh, you know, we're like by the late 90s where there's a lot of super crunchy. Um, you know, it's the era of the singer songwriter and it's almost like a second round of uh, of the hippies. Um, and we're starting to get into that where suddenly in the early 90s, there's a sense of maybe we don't want to be that guy. Maybe that guy is the problem. Well, and there's certainly a lot about corporate corruption is what this film is about. It's a satire mm-hmm. about corporate corruption um, and political it- corruption. Come to think of it. This is one of the first films I ever saw that was all about the underhanded tactics that people will go through in order to win an election. Yeah, there certainly are a lot of back office meetings in this film uh, where people of which Bruce Wayne is even part of um, where like there's a part where there's a significant film of the scene that's a scene in this film that centers around whether or not Christopher Walken can get funding from Bruce Wayne to build a power plant, which that seems an odd thing to be in a Batman movie, but you you Mm -hmm. can't just look past that because this is about power, who gets it, who wields it, and what needs to happen for power to be taken over. Um, It is a satire about corporate greed. Um, And and I applaud Burton for doing that. I think there's a reason that I find this film so imminently more watchable than any of the first four Batman movies is because in every moment of the film, there's a there's there's thematic resonance to unpack. And for me, what makes a film a film that I enjoy over the years and can now elevate to be one of my favorites is maybe not how well it works on the surface the first time around, but upon 
rewatching and rewatching and rewatching not just cool moments, but things to unpack about. Like, this is the first time that I've thought, like, in this conversation right now, 30 seconds ago, the first time it ever occurred to me the importance of the word power within the film overtly mm-hmm. with a power plant. But if you really look at what the film is talking about, it's talking about who gets to wield power as part of what it's talking about satirically. It's also making some satirical comments about feminism. And I think we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, mm-hmm. But I just think that Max Shrek, it's interesting to note, Max Shrek never appeared before or after this film in any other Batman media. Yeah. He has not ever been in a comic book or television show ever. This was it for him. So it's interesting that maybe the failure of this film made it so they never wanted to bring him back up. But you know, a wealthy industrialist to compete with Bruce Wayne seems like something they would bring up, but they never, ever did again. I wonder why that is. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, it's not like, you know, this film was not completely disregarded by future media. I feel like Catwoman's costume in uh, certainly in the animated series was influenced by uh, by Pfeiffer's iconic costume. Oh, and Penguin this. as well. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's was- an interesting thing. If you don't like. So last episode, we talked about how Batman was essentially a gangster film. Um, you know, it was like a 1930s Batman thing where it was Batman against the criminals um, and, you know, the crime bosses. And in future iterations, most of the future iterations of the Batman saga, that is actually what Penguin is Um, in the animated series. Like he is the closest to a legit crime boss whose main goal is to consolidate power and wealth. Uh, You know, the Joker is just there to spread anarchy. Uh, This guy, the the Penguin is there for personal gain. And also Catwoman uh, also fits more into the crime boss sort of film. Uh, because she's a cat burglar. That's her big thing in uh, in the animated series is that she's a thief. That's her primary thing. The the characters in this film, both the Penguin and Catwoman are, I don't want to say reduced, but they it's a very different take. They're much more primal. Uh, their goals are completely different than what we have come to associate with uh, the archetypical Penguin and Catwoman since this time. Well, the, in this, I want to comment just the other medium where you can see the Penguin in an incredible performance is the television show Gotham, which just ended, which had a very strange and not entirely successful final season, which is a shame. Um, but the the actor who plays Penguin on Gotham is spectacularly great. He's in, he's amazing. And interestingly, they eventually bring in Penguin's father in that film, played by Paul, mm-hmm. played by Paul Rubens. Oh, that's amazing. It's so good. Um so it's that's also a, a an iteration of Penguin worth watching that we won't be able to talk about because we can't talk about every television show. Um mm-hmm. but you mentioned what the characters are in this and they're not gangsters. The characters in this, they're monsters. That's what Ooh, they are. Yes. Um, yes. Penguin says it overtly. I am, I, we're, we're both monsters, but you're a well-respected monster and I am to date not. So even Penguin calls out Max as being a monster and he is. He's garish. He's got a fright wig. He's got, mm-hmm. he's, he's bizarre. He's a murderer and he's a mad he scientist. Not what you would see as your typical corporate guy he's if this had not been a batman movie he would be the freakiest guy in the room and Mm -hmm. certainly batman is a kind of monster you know i'm a real monster and you have to wear a mask he says that to batman catwoman's certainly a monster i mean everything in this is is monstrous Mm -hmm. yeah that's a good point um so let's jump here's my devito it's the penguin i want to know your thoughts on 
him because he's a very divisive character. A lot of people don't like him, his look, his suit, his performance, the sexual nature of his character. What's your thoughts? I'm going to give you a chance to go off on on Mr. DeVito for a little bit. Okay. So first, the uh, I want to differentiate between liking what DeVito does in the role versus whether or not I like the role. Um, I have a feeling my general preference for Penguin is more sort of that sort of crime boss sort of thing. Um, but on the other hand, that totally would not have worked for this film. Uh, Penguin makes me the role. The character makes me deeply uncomfortable, which is probably the goal there. Um, especially I had forgotten just how sexually gross a character he is. He is lecherous to the extreme. And uh, so but I have to go with the idea of that is exactly what Tim Burton wanted the role to be. And in that sense, I feel, you know, I can disagree with the direction that somebody wanted to take a role, but still appreciate. Oh, no, you absolutely succeeded in the direction that you went there. Um, and Danny DeVito is it's so it, he actually disappears into the character for me. Like, yes, it's obviously Danny DeVito because of, you know, his size and just his general shape. But at the same time, it's very different than other roles that I've seen him do. Uh, so, again, it's I have to give props to to DeVito. He I think he turns in a performance that that uh, achieves what the aim of this character was for to just the same degree that Jack Nicholson did with the Joker. I'm gonna have to disagree with you <laughs> on on some of this. I feel like the character was rewritten once Danny DeVito got the role. Um, mm -hmm. The lecherous nature, certainly he is your first choice. He looks, mm -hmm. you know, frankly, he looks like Burgess Meredith to yeah. start with, and then they make him more monstrous on top of it. But he just immediately goes, it's it's like when they cast uh, Patrick Stewart as Professor X, right? Mm -hmm. He's the one that you would go to. And in this case, if you wanted to do the crime boss version of the Penguin, you would just stick a big nose on Danny DeVito and have him go in and do you know the crime boss version of the Penguin. So yeah. the physical look was there. But Danny DeVito has a thing that he does. I feel like he is, he is actually a really good actor. And I've seen him do really good acting work. But what he was known for is sort of the same thing that Gilbert Godfrey was known for, right? He's known for being the guy who said the over-the-top thing. The, he's known for being crude. He's known for being a crude character. It's probably because that's his character on Taxi, first when he got, you know, sort of paid on. And he just kept doing that thing because that's what you hired Danny DeVito to do. Um, I think you know, over a long that career. That might be it because it's my my first memory of Danny DeVito. So and therefore, you know, like the iconic Danny DeVito to me is him and twins, which is a very watered down version of who he is in Taxi or even in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So but I think you're I think you're right. It's still a watered down version of this. It's still the same flavor. It might be watered down, but it's the same flavor. It's worth noting that he has there are roles out there you can find. I've heard actually I've heard that it's not a spectacular film, but I've heard that he is actually very good in the new Dumbo movie, which also has uh, Michael Keaton in it and is directed by Tim Burton, interestingly enough. Oh. Um he can be a character that you root for. And he has the acting chops. But at this point, especially in his career, you knew him for this and for twins. That's the sort of thing you knew him for is he was the look at how not cool this guy. And that's what he came in to do. I think I feel like if they'd gone with some of the other people that they had thought of, again, he was you know kind of the first choice. But if you've gone with some of the other people that they have thought of, you know, they had mentioned uh, possibly doing Marlon Brando, John Candy, Bob Hoskins, Dudley Moore. 
you know, the Christopher Lee, which would have been really strange. Christopher Lloyd. Very um, weird. Um, they were really looking at Dustin Hoffman, which would have been really interesting. But I don't think with Dustin Hoffman, you would have had, you know, I'd like to fill her void. I just don't think you would have had that. Um, oh, that's true. That's a very good point. Um, I don't know. But here's the thing. They changed the character for DeVito. And that doesn't mean that DeVito did a poor job doing what was asked of him. And so I think in terms of performance, he's got the chops. He's doing a good job. He's nailing every beat, right? In acting, you're talking mm -hmm. about beats. And every moment that is asked of him to do, he does that, mom that moment with aplomb. He does that well. That being said, the rewrite they did because it was DeVito, and I don't know if there was any improvisation going on on set, if some of that was just being him, I don't know, but I feel like it, especially now, I think it was not great at the time, and I think it's aged very poorly, because very he's gone poorly. from making me uncomfortable and lecherous. Let's be clear, he commits sexual assault when he grabs that woman's boob. Like he, That's, that's assault. Mm -hmm. he, that's bad. That's super bad. Um, the stuff he says, the overt sexual stuff that he says to Catwoman, with the exception of one moment, which I think is a appropriately awful, is is you're I think you're meant to laugh at it, aren't you? When he says I like to fill her void, you're supposed to laugh. You know, ointment scented or unscented. You're supposed mm -hmm. to you're supposed to be chuckling, but I'm not, and yeah. I think that. I think that's the part that ages the worst for me. And frankly, I hate his suit. Whenever he's out of the coat, I think the suit looks remarkably fake. And it's it's mm -hmm. it's problematic for me. Um, so he is the weak link, but not because of him. Uh, can we talk about the strong link in this film? Can we talk about the reason this film got the accolades it did? Um, Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman mm -hmm. is a revelation. Was a revelation to 13-year-old you in the same way that she was a revelation to 16-year-old me, I'm sure. But also as an actress. Um, yes. What what a performance. What a spectacular performance. And not just when she becomes Pet Catwoman, but as as the mousy Selena Kyle. Uh, did you have any impression of Michelle Pfeiffer before this role? Like, have you seen not any of her this earlier role? Work? No. So she no. had gotten an Academy Award nomination for the Fabulous Baker Boys just a couple of years earlier. And of course, she had done Grease 2 and she had done some other things. Um, this catapulted her to stardom very quickly. <laughs> and then she sort of dropped off the radar not too long after this. Um, and she's making a comeback now, actually, in the Ant-Man films and stuff like that. Um, well, she's uh, she has been in if you look at her body of work, especially in the past like 10, 15 years. She has been in a ton of sci-fi, fantasy, superhero genre stuff. She takes to this genre very well. There, there is something otherworldly about her. Um, mm -hmm. There's something she is, you know, certainly in this film, I think that people are calling her the most beautiful woman ever. And I, I certainly maybe felt at the time that she was. Um, there is a sexuality to her character, but it is not overt. Her character is, with the exception of a couple times with Batman, Despite the skin type vinyl, she is not being sexual throughout the film. She is being so there was a, a, a girl I knew in high school who who oozed a sexuality that she didn't mean to. And I knew her very, very well. And she didn't even realize that she did it with the way that she talked, the way that she moved, the way that she spoke. She was nominated for class flirt. 
And she was a person who would say that she didn't flirt with people. There was something about the way she carried herself that she was oozing it and not using it. And why that was, I don't know. It was certainly certainly made her life more difficult. And she would bemoan that she would go into a situation and people would say that that she was sending out signals. Um, and that's the moment I want to talk about. In 1992, you could say th- this is about the turning point where where he's like, you sent out all the signals. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really interesting moment because, yes, you know, when she's laying on the bed and she's giving herself a bath, for instance, you could say that that is a sexual signal. But there is no – she's oozing sexuality without sending out sexual invitation. Does that make sense? Yes. I mean, I, I think I've got – I have to disagree with you on the because you said she's not she's not that sexual a character aside from some of the things with Batman. But to me, literally every and maybe it's we're talking about the same thing. If you're talking about maybe she's not intentionally sexy, but she oozes it literally every scene, starting with the very first thing that Catwoman says, which is I feel so much more yummy. I'm sorry. That is a there. There is absolutely sexual undertone in that line. Um, the, I feel like her licking herself, uh, no, that is, that is absolutely sexual. Um, she is like that sense of sexiness is a core aspect to the character. Um, and I guess you, you might make a case for the fact that she doesn't, that she's not aware of it, but honestly, since so much of Catwoman's mission is she, uh, you know, she, uh, she hates the patriarchy and, you know, there's a little bit of, you know, her disgust at uh, her disgust at the way that men lord things over women. It strikes me more as more likely that she is aware that her sexiness can be used as a weapon. Um, well, I feel I, like she does. Thing, it. Though, certainly right? she certainly I, she uses so, that against Batman. Well, she does use it against Batman, but she also has a sexual attraction toward Batman that she is, she has a sexual attraction toward Batman that she is allowing herself to indulge in. So I don't think she uses her sexuality as a weapon against anyone. I don't think there's, there's a moment where, where she is, you know, when, when the security cards come off at her and they're like, I don't know whether or not to, you know, to fall in love. She mocks them for it, goes after her with a whip and sends her, sends them on their way. When she comes Fair in point. to, when she comes into Penguin and yeah, she's laying in the bed. The minute he tries to get sexual, she's like, I'll come back later. This is not what she's, she, she's not doing it. So I think there's a very millennial idea. In this, um, where if you look at a character who uses their sexuality as a weapon, um, you could look at Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct, for instance. She uses mm-hmm. her sexuality as a weapon. You could say that um, when we get to Nicole Kidman and the role of Chase Meridian in Batman Forever, she is using her sexuality. But I feel like Catwoman is owning her sexuality. Mm. She nice feels yummy. It doesn't mean other people get to taste her. She feels mm-hmm. yummy. If she wants to be a sexual creature, she is she is owning the fact that she is a sexual creature and she is being sexual with the person that she wants to be sexual with. But she just because she comes off as super sexy does not mean you get to ogle her, does not mean that you get to make references mm-hmm. at her and does not mean that she was sending you signals. She is sexy because she likes being sexy for her. Well, and that's a, that's the concept a really nice of way of putting owning it. Owning your sexuality. I didn't hear that sort of thing until, you know, until much later, until the early 2010s. 
um, where where you were saying things like that, where the term slut shaming became a thing that you told people to not do. Um, mm-hmm. So for all the yeah, sexuality that's true. The idea has, of the idea of you know what, if you want to be sexy, absolutely be sexy. That doesn't mean that a it doesn't mean that you owe anybody anything, and b it doesn't mean that you need to somehow. The idea of no, you should do, you should be modest so that you don't make other people uncomfortable. Um, that idea wasn't really challenged uh, until you know we got into the 21st century. Yeah, so I think that's one of the reasons her character is so iconic. Um, one because she's super sexy for us, you know, pubescent boys at the time. Uh, but I think that she is she is an example of of female sexual empowerment and also just just feminist empowerment in a way that you didn't get in the 90s it's not perfect i want to say it's Mm -hmm. not a perfect thing i think that there are i know feminists that would say that no she's being objectified to sell to sell the movie she's on the she's wearing the vinyl suit so more pubescent boys buy tickets to the movie and that's probably true Mm -hmm. but at the same time you could have cast a you know i hate the word bimbo so but you could have cast it's an 80s term but you could have cast a you know pamela anderson in the role and sold as many tickets they decided to do something deeper something stronger uh in her and i'm 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 impressed by it um, Certainly, she's one of the first character. She's one of the first characters that I can think of in my own history of watching film that is both sexy and strong. Um, the uh, I mean, I'd seen strong characters like uh, you know Sarah Connor in Terminator. She is, and you know, and Ripley certainly strong characters, but both of them were also decidedly not sexy. The yeah, well, idea and it's interesting, that- right? Because in the fir- in the first iteration of those two characters, they were sexy, right? You had you had Sarah Connor Terminator One was you know she was played to be sexy, and if you look at Ripley in Alien, she is played to be sexy. But when they decided to turn them around, ra- turn them around and see that you know, they only become strong at the end of those films. But when they decide mm-hmm. to turn them around and play them for being characters who are strong throughout their own films, you had to eliminate the sexiness of the characters mm-hmm. yeah but certainly this was the uh the idea and especially for a prepubescent boy who's just you know <laughs> who's just starting to come to terms with his own desires um having a uh i think yes it's undeniable that she was to a certain degree objectified as a you know as something for you know for boys of my age to lust after but at the same time, there is something to be said for the fact that I was lusting after not a damsel in distress, but an incredibly powerful woman. Um, you know, I've always joked uh, that, you know, knowing that a woman could kick my ass is a huge turn on for me. Uh, and certainly she's an example of one. Um, I think that she comes off not not iconic just because of, of what they do with the character, but the performance specifically in one of my favorite scenes in all of movies is the scene where she comes back and does the transformation to Catwoman. It's worth noting that uh, that the scene where she is pushed out the window, so many great lines, by the way, um, really positive, really, and we're going to talk next week about terrible dialogue, but the dialogue here, how could you be so mean to someone so meaningless? Just like the, the wordplay, um, everything mm-hmm. that happens in terms of the way the characters speak to each other is clever and cool. Um, I think that the... Cats bringing her back to life 
again, you're either going to go with that scene or you're not. Did you go with that scene? How did you feel about cats bringing her back to life? Did they bring well, her back you know to what life? I was, is it just symbolic? So here was the, uh, here's the thing that I was thinking throughout this entire film was what you said last episode about, um, okay, you get one gimme in every film. And, um, and I felt like the largest gimme in this film was magical animals. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, penguins could, you know, raise a young child, um, and then, uh, and then escort when that child grew up and then died, escort that child to his watery grave without, I noticed actually touching him. Um, and certainly, you know, the cats, you know, magically returning her. I mean, even then there's that, you know, that sense of she has nine lives, like she got shot four times and all that did was take away four of her nine lives. Um, so that certainly that elevated this world into, you know, almost magical, but Hey, we're talking superheroes here. So, you know, obviously there's room for give on that. Um, yeah, but last, so last movie we were ju- talking about a, a technological superhero in a, in, in a gangster world. Um, yes. Yeah. So th- that I, set it in a very different world. I'll tell you that, the only thing, the major, the major plot hole for me in this that I just couldn't quite wrap my head around is so Max Shrek pushes her out a window. She gets brought back. She's turned into Catwoman. And you know what? I'll even go with the fact that, you know, suddenly she's got ninja skills now. Um, but her sudden hatred of Batman like it's like, OK, wanting to combat, uh, you know, wanting to combat Max Shrek. Absolutely. Wanting to dismantle the patriarchy. Absolutely. How it is that suddenly she puts Batman into that. Uh, you know, she even tells the penguin. She's like, you and I both have the same problem. The Batman. It's like, how is he? A, how is he a problem for you at this point? Well, at that point, Batman had had fought her. And I think that you need to give Batman someone to fight. And I feel this way about a lot of the action scenes in this film. I feel like when it's time for an action scene, it's like, oh, we got to have an action scene. It's been a little while. We should put an action Mm -hmm. scene in here. Um, And you need to give Batman a a character to do battle with. And that's, you know, something that you would see in the comics. So you just sort of accept that it's happening as long as you don't think too hard. You're right. That once you think too hard Mm -hmm. about it, it doesn't make any sense that she's after Batman. Um, I mean, it makes it like the fact that the Penguin and the Batman are mortal enemies. Yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. The fact that the Joker and the Batman were mortal enemies. Yeah, their goals were diametrically opposed. Um, It honestly would have made like I could see. And certainly in the, uh, you know, in the comics and uh, in the animated series, it's more akin to this. I get the sense that in many ways they're sort of allies just with very, very different tactics. Um, and there's a little bit of that in this where the Batman is like, look, I don't you know, I agree with you that Max Shrek is scum of the earth, but we can't kill him. Um, so I feel like the relationship that she and the Batman had at the end of the film made a whole lot more sense than it did towards the beginning of the film. So let's talk about the Batman in this film, because there's things that you can criticize him for. Where I'm going to talk about both him and some of the scenes involving him. Um, that pissed off Batman fans, frankly. Um, this is mm-hmm. a Batman that is totally, except when it's time for her to kill Max Shrek, he's totally fine with killing people. Like, absolutely yeah. <laughs> fine with killing everybody. And and let's be clear, there was a, a guy committing arson, like a guy burning a store, basically rioting and burning a store. And Batman was like, that guy's burning a store? I will set him I'm on gonna fire. I'm going to set him on fire. <laughs> um. Batman is 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 the Punisher now. 
He just doesn't care. He will kill anybody who's in the this that and then the bomb moment, which I really like the bomb moment. Um, where he there's a guy who punches him in the face, and for the crime of punching him in the face, Batman attaches four sticks of TNT to him, throws him down a mine shaft, and lets him explode. It's a funny moment, but Batman is out and out murdering whoever who whoever yeah. he runs into. These aren't major criminals and at the time that batman encounters them they're not doing anything that bad like one guy punches batman in the face and gets a bomb another guy is burning a what seems like an unoccupied building and gets burned to death batman is totally cool with it he's like yeah i'll kill people just for being there your thoughts Mm -hmm. uh no, I mean, you're absolutely right with that. I did notice uh, kind of tangentially um, the sheer number of people who are thrown from roofs in this film. Uh, I, I di- And I didn't realize it until I was writing the plot synopsis. And I was like, and then this person gets thrown from a roof. And then next paragraph, I'm like, oh, this person also gets thrown from a roof. Like it is um, I mean, part of me is just like they really need to talk to the architects and have some safety rails installed on their roofs because they're there. Every single one of them is just a massive death trap. No, it's, um, just, it's, it's sort of like they realize, oh, the Joker can fall. Let's throw everybody. Let's just everybody throw them from the roof. Uh, but yeah, no, Batman is I, I hadn't thought about it until just now. But you're you're absolutely right uh, in that. It is kind of weird that at the end, suddenly Batman's like, no, don't kill Max Shrek. That would be wrong. Um, if anything, there's something I could go to do an extreme say and say sense and say there's actually something kind of white collar classist about it. Oh, you're a criminal thug. I will kill you without a second thought. You are a white collar criminal. Oh, no, we'll give you some, uh, you know, we'll give you some leeway and and trust the system. And not just a white collar criminal. It's a criminal who happens to have have a white collar. This is not a guy guilty of white collar <laughs> crimes. This is a guy who has pushed a woman out of building mm-hmm. like like. Yeah. Um. So when people freaked out that Ben Affleck's Batman seems to be maiming and killing people going hashtag not my Batman. Um, but they call back to Michael Keaton as being the bat- best Batman. And I will say. Every moment that he's Batman, I love him. I love and I love mm-hmm. his Bruce Wade. I still love him. Um, he's I don't understand why he's again, it's to the actor's credit that I so don't understand what the script is having him do, but I am loving him still. Mm-hmm. He's still perfect. Yeah. He still makes no mistakes. Um he's yeah. playing it so low key. Um, I'm I'm really enjoying uh what he's doing, but it doesn't make any sense uh where he's coming from. Um, let's talk a little bit about the action scenes. Another gimme that this film wanted to give you or wanted you to give it was the weirdness of the, the big set piece in the middle when the penguin takes over the Batmobile. Um, it is at that point, it is at that point where you're like, oh, this is not going to be played for adrenaline. It's not supposed to adrenalize you. It's you're supposed to go. Oh, isn't that weird? I love it now. Yeah, you're so right. But at the time, the idea that oh, the Batmobile, you 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 get a a a a, a spinny barber pole thing that spins round and round, and and again, a podcast I listened to about it pointed out Penguin has taken the time to build a mini Batmobile ride for himself. Yeah, <laughs> he poured the fiberglass and painted it, and so he could well, the, pretend ride the, the idea Batmobile? of spontaneous. 
I mean, the idea of spontaneously appearing complicated gadgets had already been very well established in the first Batman. So that one I was okay to go along with. No, um, you see, but I feel like I feel like specifically the inside the penguins thing that he built a mini Batmobile to play with, like but basically one of those little quarter rides that would be outside of the Walmart. Like mm-hmm. that he built one of those for himself is it's just that little bit of a bridge too far where where it, for it now now I love it. But at the time I was like, that doesn't make any sense. That makes zero wonder, sense. Can you imagine now? This just suddenly made me think, can you imagine what this film would be like if it had been animated in the style of Corpse Bride or uh, Nightmare Before Christmas? Like it if this t- had not well, been a live action film, but an animated film. And that's going to wait till wait till we get to the end, because I'm giving this film a lot of crap. I'm giving this film a lot of crap, but there's there's a point to be made about what you just said. Um, uh, I think that part of the criticism that could be lobbied to this film, when you said, talked about the gimmies, it's not what Burton is interested in doing when you're dealing with a Batman action film. He has no interest in a Batman action film. He'll go through the motions sometimes and there'll be things that seem like action, but he is not interested in delivering what he did last time, nor is he interested in delivering the superhero Batman you want. He's got a Burton tale to tell and a Burton tale is filled with this bizarre whimsy that you just can't ask about. Um, and so when you talk about the cats, you uh, the ambiguity did the cats bring her back to life? Does she have nine lives? Is it magical that she can now do kickboxing? Um, the kickboxing is the only thing that is definitively magical because it could be she did hit that awning before she hits the ground. So it could be mm-hmm. she just has a concussion and she doesn't definitely have nine lives at the end. She gets shot and she gets weaker every time she gets shot. It could just be that she's in the process of dying and he's a bad shot. Um, certainly he shoots Batman in the face and Batman's just totally fine. Um, like the only thing magical about that is the fact that she kicks, you know, we don't know how soon the red triangle game found a uh, penguin could be that maybe the penguins didn't raise him, but they just found him that the red triangle game went from there. Um, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's could be not magical, but I feel like when you get to the, the big action scene in the middle and you're like, okay, you've, you've whistled past the penguins and you've whistled past the cats and you've gotten to the action scene and they've, you, he's just fought Catwoman and he's gone down, and he's gotten into his car and they've taken over the car and they cut to the penguin in the little ridey ride. I, I can, I can hear the sound in my head of millions of too cool for school. You know, the, the, the not weird kids like me trying to watch their cool sequel to the cool Batman movie. I can feel them checking out when that mm-hmm. happens. Um, I can tell you it seems like that, that make me come back and we'll talk about that at the end. But uh, for you, it wasn't a bridge too far. Well, I did the, the oh, that bridge had been crossed long before that point for me. So I okay. was like, it was, it was already so per- like, I think by 20 minutes into the film, I was like, oh, we are in Wonderland. We are in the Wonderland equivalent of Gotham right now. Okay. And so that was just, you know, adjust my gears to live in that world. And so, you know, so by that world's logic, the the car, uh, you know, the mini quarter ride car made all the sense in the world. Yeah, agreed. So, um, so we get to the end. Um, again, we could we could go an hour just pointing out weird things, weird inconsistencies uh, within the film, you know, the. The I will say this, there are moments in the film that don't make any sense at all, that I don't even understand exactly what's happening in the moment. And that's 
that's a problem. Not just moments where you think about, you go back and you think about it and you go, oh, when Batman's fighting a female assailant, what he likes to do is grab vats of acid that he's carrying him with him and shatter them on them. That's what, that's how Batman mm-hmm. fights now. Um, yeah. That's a, when you think about it, that's a parking lot thought. But I can tell you, even till this moment, I've seen this film probably a hundred times. And to this moment, when Batman gets out of his little boat, I don't know why he takes out the remote control that can fire all of the missiles. I don't know why he does that. I don't know why he turns it on. I don't know if he intends. It seems, to- yeah, because it's like, it seems like he's using it as a threat against Penguin. But clearly, that's exactly what Penguin wants because he then grabs it and presses the button himself. Well, it seems like Penguin's like, oh, no, what's this thing that you have? And then he gets it and Penguin's like, I'll push the button. I don't know if Penguin meant to push the button or if he thought that would turn it off. I don't I That's a scene that I just don't mm-hmm. fully understand. And there are a few scenes like that in this film where I also I, Penguin right, right after that point, Penguin, he crashes through glass and then falls into the Penguin enclosure. But he falls into the water, which has already been established, is, you know, fairly deep. Um, And that is supposedly what is the killing blow for him, Uh, which, you know, and it's really only a little bit high. It's maybe twice as high as when he jumped off the bridge into the water. Um, But again, considering the survivability of being thrown off roofs into solid objects that has already been firmly established in this film, it seemed a little odd that somehow that was his weakness. Yeah. And maybe it was the toxic chemicals or something, but it wasn't really, you know. Oh, yeah, that's it. He did make the mention of the toxic chemicals. Yeah, but if it's it's a one time mention an hour earlier in the film, that's, you know, that's Mm -hmm. that's problematic. There are lots of things to be problematic about. You can be problematic about chips imitating of Christopher Walken, which is not working. It makes him sound like Arnold Schwarzenegger. You can be, <laughs> you know, you can be problematic about, about plenty, but then there are scenes like the, like the, oh my God, does that mean we have to start fighting moment, which is wonderful. It's a wonderful, mm-hmm. incredible wonderful. moment. Yeah. Loved that scene. Um, yeah. uh, and, and so I guess we're going to get down to, um, because again, we, we could spend another hour pointing out the, the cool little moments and also moments that don't make any sense. But I need to ask you, sir, on a scale mm-hmm. of one to five rocket empowered penguins, how do you rate <laughs> Batman Returns? All right. So I'm going to, so the first thing I'm going to say is uh, you're absolutely going to hate because because we've already established that uh, it's such a it's such a rough word for you. I watched this film this morning and I was like, you know what? This film is fine. It uh, it was not bad. It also didn't really do a ton for me watching it around. Um, you know, it's consistent. Like at the end of the day, it's consistent by its own logic. Um, it just wasn't it, it wasn't as much fun for me as the first film was. Um, there is also something I want to mention. You like you absolutely cannot judge this film by the same uh, rubric as the first film. We have agreed and established two completely different films. It's as you said, Tim Burton had no desire to make a quote unquote Batman film. He made a very he made an interesting film, um, but really like he focused way more on the villains than the heroes in this. And all of those villains were interesting. However, I'm reminded of something that you have said on multiple occasions, which is to a certain degree, especially when making a sequel, 
you do kind of owe something to the audience's expectations. Like we've discussed Last Jedi before. And even though you and I have both both said that we we really enjoy the film, you have taken uh, the director to task sometime for so deliberately subverting so much of what was established in Force Awakens. Um, this is had this been the first Batman film, uh, maybe it wouldn't have been as much of an issue. Because, you know, the whole concept hadn't been established yet. But the fact that Tim Burton, that the same director made one film that really, really worked, was really, really popular, and then very specifically made something that was in no way like the first film. Um, it, you know, again, could very artistic and creative in its own right. I will not deny that. But I can absolutely get behind the number of people who were there in the theater just thinking, Wait, what what is going on here? Like if if Back to the Future 2 had been as much of a departure uh, in terms of theme from this as, uh, you know, as Back to the Future, uh, like it's, you know, people would have been pretty, you know, pretty pissed off about that, too, I think. So I, I absolutely get why there was so much disappointment around that. Um, that being said, it is spectacularly weird in all sorts of wonderful ways. So I will give this a three point five. It's interesting that you would say that the film is fine, um, a word that I hate, uh, because I feel like the one thing this film cannot be is fine. You know, I think that Ant-Man can be fine. I think that mm-hmm. even if you weren't that into the first Batman, it could be fine. But this film is nothing if not polarizing. And I would imagine, um, I want to challenge your your review of fine. Are you saying the film is just fine? Are you saying that the film averages out to fine because of you're taking the average of its strengths and its weaknesses and it ends up being fine? Sure. Let me explain. My definition of fine is if I go, I sit through a movie, you know, if I watch a movie and if I don't, if I leave feeling, you know, electrified or, oh, that was so much fun. The film is better than fine. If I leave the film thinking, oh, my Lord, I want my money back. That was terrible. The film is worse than fine. If I leave the film thinking, "Ah, okay, then, you know, I'm not particularly, you know, I don't find it particularly memorable or energizing. But at the same time, I don't find it, uh, you know, bad or a waste of money. To me, that is sort of fine. So I guess you could say just sort of the average. But really, when I say fine, it's fine is about the emotional reaction that instills in it instills in me or lack thereof. Now, also, I will say I totally see what you mean about like it is very polarizing um, and that. For a lot of other people, this is a love it or hate it film. But I also need to acknowledge, and this is especially 25 years later, the amount of weird films that I have seen is so much. And I've spent so long living in the geek and weird world that weird is not weird to me anymore. Um, So it's entirely possible that I might not have found this film fine or had such a lukewarm reception to it uh, when I first saw it because I was not as familiar with weird. But now, you know, there's even just in Tim Burton's, you know, Tim Burton comes out with another weird film and it's just like, oh, it's another weird Tim Burton film. Okay, Uh, so the weird doesn't have as much of an impact on me as it would have 25 years ago. Okay, I see. Um, So I'm going to ask you this question before I move on. So are you definitively saying if you had to rank Batman and Batman Returns, you would rank Batman Returns below Batman? Definitely. All right. So we will go to our rankings at the end of our, our all four of these films. Um, I clearly okay. do not. I can tell you, mm-hmm. I don't know when I will watch the original Batman again. 
I watched it to show it to my kids and I watched it to, to do this podcast. I don't see any reason to ever watch the original Batman again. I don't. There's nothing in it mm-hmm. for me to see. I feel like I've seen everything in that film that there is to see. And I feel like it is, you know, while good, not by no means a bad stretch, you know, I feel like both recency bias and also more modern take makes me, if I want to see a Joker film, I not only have Heath Ledger's Joker to go to, but now I'm going to have a new Joker film coming up. And if I want to see mm-hmm. a Batman film, I've got a number of Batmans to choose from. Um, the best Batman, I will still say that I have seen maybe Lego Batman in terms of just the character of Batman. Um, <laughs> um, it's a, he's so good. Uh, the first, the first Batman we reviewed. Uh, the, the fact is, is I can tell you what I'm going to watch this film again. I'm going to watch it this Christmas because I yeah. will. The choice of doing it at Christmas time. Um, they say that art, they say this about acting, but I say this about art in general. Art is the process of making interesting choices. That's what art is. Good art makes a bunch of interesting choices that you like, and that's why you think it's good. Bad art, really super bad art that you hate, will also be making a bunch of interesting choices that you hate. And mediocre art is art where you go, oh, that's pretty good, but it doesn't seem to make a lot of interesting choices. So let Mm -hmm. me say that the reason that I'm going to rate this film so highly is that every choice is interesting. Whether you like it, whether Mm -hmm. you hate it, Max Shrek is interesting in the way they do him. Penguin is interesting from the moment he's introduced to the moment he dies. You may hate the penguins, but darn if it isn't interesting. Catwoman, both from mousy all the way to crazy and murderous at the end, and also Selina throughout the film, every choice that she makes is interesting. The fact that they set it at Christmas is interesting. The fact that the goons aren't just guys with Joker jackets, but are clowns is interesting. The, The fact that, you know, that Penguin is as lecherous and awful as he is, it's off putting. And I I kind of don't like it, but it's interesting. Michael Keaton's mm-hmm. performance has always been from moment one. Interesting. The fact that he is murderous every moment that he is murderous. I'm like, oh my gosh, why is he doing that? But it's interesting. Uh, the cinematography we didn't even talk about there. I really noticed this film, how good the cinematography, cinematography in this film is. The We talked about the sense of space in the last film being something that it seemed bigger, but it also seemed more common. The art direction of this film is interesting. The score, which we haven't even talked about at all, this is the first musical score that I ever bought on CD, and I listened to it incessantly. I listened to it while I drove. I could I know the score note by note. When I made my first horror movie that I made in college, I made it with I used this score in that film. It's one of the reasons I can't ever really post that film up. Um, because the score that I use was just the Batman Return score. The score is phenomenally hmm. great. Um the uh the transformation scene of of Catwoman, it, it the movie is transporting and is a piece of art. And I would say that there is not another piece of art in the entire Batman franchise until The Dark Knight. There isn't a choice. Uh, uh, there isn't a point where the film's art outweighs the film's commerce until I think The Dark Knight does it again and 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 is make, is making a definite choice and trying to do a thing. Um, and as a piece of art, this film is is interesting. I don't like all of it and it doesn't make a logical. It's a better piece of art than it is a film, certainly. So I want to give this film five stars, um, except I have to recognize my own bias. 
toward this film because of the summer that it came out because of the 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 rose colored soft filtered glasses that I know that I wear around my heart about this film and the fond memories that I have of of you know the friends and the girlfriend and the time and the the summer and you know the 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 stuff that happened immediately before and immediately after this film i have a story this, you know a very personal stories both surrounding the days that i saw this film and the fact that it makes me think of of those people and van that i went to go see with it you know the first time i ever saw a film the day before it came out and i felt so special doing it everything about this film is special to me and so i have to deduct points for that because because that's just mm-hmm. me and I can't just sit there for the same reason I go I will add points for the film being special I'm going to deduct points knowing that the film is just special to me which would take it to about a 4.5 and I'm going to deduct another quarter point from the film because the film is not for everyone and I can absolutely understand why people would reject this film and I can't in good conscience give this film no deduction for the fact that the film failed as many people as it did. So for me, it's a five. My bias makes it a 4.5, but it's ultimate ultimate score is a 4.25 because it there are people that it won't please. I am happy to say that much like my beloved Deep Space Nine, this film has over time increased in its acclaim. The general feeling the next day was Batman Returns sucks. I know a lot of people who would say that this is the best Batman film. It's, um, I was watching it. Uh, so I watched it on iTunes um, and iTunes will show the Rotten Tomatoes rating of a film. And I was this film has a 79% on Rotten Tomatoes. Like that is way higher than I expected it to be. Um, but I think you're right. It's the once people got over the disappointment of uh, expectation subversion, um, you know, and just were able to see this film in its own right. Uh, they were much more inclined to enjoy it. Well, I can tell you that I know I've seen Batman and Robin the last couple of years and it's not great. And I've just seen Batman and Batman Forever in the last week. And I will say that there's almost no argument that this film has the most rewatchability factor. There's like all the other films are giving you what you want on the surface. Certainly Batman Forever is doing that the most. And we'll talk about that next week. But all the other films are giving you exactly what you want on the surface. And there's less underneath. There's, there's less meat underneath of it because they're giving you so much up front. This film, by holding back on what you want up front, offers itself up as a as a, a piece for greater, not just analysis in the way that we're doing it now, but personal experience. This film improves for me on rewatching. And by this point, it's just a, a it's comfort food now for me. I love it and I've seen it so many mm-hmm. times. I will see it another before I die, I will see this movie film another 20 times. Uh this is um for me a personal favorite. I would say the question that I asked at the beginning of the podcast, is it still my favorite superhero film? Um and that's really hard. It's still the one I'm probably going to watch the most. I ugh. There's a case to be made for um, Avengers Infinity War at this point, which just continue. It's funny if this is my first review, I didn't like it as much. It's growing on me a lot. There's a case to be made for Spider-Man Two. There's a case to be made for Logan. Um, but I don't know. This may this may retain the crown despite the fact that I can criticize it as much as I have. Um, I for me, it's still very very special. I'm, I'm I appreciate that I have you to talk to about it because this has been. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I've rarely enjoyed a viewing of it as I as much as I have this time. So I thank you, Arthur, and I thank you, the listeners, for for being there for for this film. Cool, cool. That being said, in a week from now, we will be reviewing 1995's Batman Forever, a film that when it came out, I said, oh my God, they did it right finally. This is by far the best Batman film. Thank God they finally gave us the Batman we wanted. That was my (laughs) uh, words coming out of the theater in 1995. Spoiler alert, I may not say the same thing now. <laughs> uh, so we will we will cover that next time. If you enjoyed this podcast, please let us know. Leave us some reviews on iTunes. Uh, like our Facebook page. Subscribe. Uh, please, it really does help. If you're listening to this, you've gotten to the end of the show. Uh, take the time as we're doing this wrap up. Before we finish with the opening or, or the closing music, please go to whatever app you're using to listen to and give us a five-star review because it really is super helpful. And let people know that we there's a superhero movie podcast that they should listen to. Uh, But for now, my name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. And hey there, true believers. Don't eat the mistletoe. (laughs) What? Now that you've finished the show, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode of the Totally Super Podcast. Also, if you like this, you should head over to geeksradio.com or search Geeks Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. There you can find Trek Off, the not-safe-for-work Star Trek podcast with Justin and Alexia. So search for Trek Off, search for Pop Off, search for Geeks Radio, and just thanks for joining us. This has been a presentation of Endlight Entertainment. 